You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to More to be Said from Kingsway Christian Church. This is a podcast we are launching to really take those kinds of questions that you are most curious about and dig deeper into them. And today I have with me my friend, Brett Siebold. We went to college together. Uh, let's just say a couple years ago, and uh, Brett is wrapping up his dissertation right now to get his doctorate at Liberty University in something called apologetics. So apologetics is kind of like reasons for the faith or reasons to believe it. So we've asked Brett to come in here, answer some questions for us that we think you out there might be wrestling with and wondering about as it relates to Christianity, as it relates to faith, as it relates to religion, even comparing some of the world religions. And in this particular podcast today, we are going to cover two questions. Number one, how can I know and that I could trust the Bible's message about Jesus? And number two, how can I know God is real? So now let me just say hi to my friend, Brett. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. It is so good to have you here with us today. So we met roughly 22 years ago, and uh, I'm going to call it that. I don't know exactly how long it was. <laughs> and uh, we were in Bible college together, and um, I'm going to tell a Brett story, and then another podcast, I'll let him tell a Matt story. But one of the stories I remember about Brett is we used to play full contact football all the time in Bible college. And I remember we would go out and play and Brett was one of the handful of guys who actually knew what he was doing. He was always bigger and stronger and faster than all of us out there who were just uh, a bunch of Bible college students who weren't good enough to make our teams. Brett actually played in high school. So how many years do you play football in high school, Brett? All four, but I think I started in fifth grade. <laughs> wow. What position did you play? Uh, wide receiver and defensive back. And which was your favorite? Um, probably wide receiver. I wanted to be a linebacker, but actually I was a little too thin. Okay. Well, you've kept it well over the years. So good job on that, by the way. Did you ever get any scholarship offers? I got uh, recruited by a few schools, but no scholarship offers. My senior year, I had a nasty ankle injury and only caught five passes. So my junior year, I made all-conference honorable mention, but my senior year, I was playing in an air cast. So I lost interest <sighs> and followed one of my best friends to Bible college where we met. And who was that? Who was Jason Hills. I remember Jason Hills. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Brett grew up in the Pennsylvania area. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, is now living in Tennessee and joins us here outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. So with that being said, we're going to jump into our first question today. How can I know that I could trust the Bible's message about Jesus? Brett, what would you say to that question? Well, before we uh, touch on that question specifically, I want, I want to pull out the phrase, can I know? Okay. Can I know? And here's why this shows up actually in a lot of our questions in this uh, podcast and in the uh, following podcast. It's very important to, to talk about this uh, field, which is known as epistemology. Now, don't be afraid of that word. Epistemology is simply the study and philosophy of knowledge. How can we know things and how can we obtain knowledge? Uh, do we even have a thing that we call knowledge. Is knowledge revealed? Is it discovered or is it created? So um, let me talk a, a little bit about some different mindsets. And uh, some of you may have heard these terms before, but um, I actually had this presented to me when working on one of my master's degree, and it just made so much sense. So I'm going to talk about three mindsets here. I'm going to talk about the pre-modern mindset, the modern mindset, and the postmodern mindset. And these are, these are just generalities. Um, you, you know, they're not perfect descriptions, but in the pre-modern mindset, knowledge and meaning uh, is sort of resides in the authority 
um, the uh, those in authority. It might be a person, like a king or a, a priest or a pope, or it might be in a text, like for us Christians, the Bible. So the scriptures would be the uh, the authority. Uh, so authority is sort of, or, I'm sorry, knowledge is given from an authority. After that, or coming out of that mindset. Is going to be the Protestant Reformation. I'm sure we've heard of the Protestant. Yeah, put us on a timeline here. So when you say pre-modern, what are we thinking? What are we talking about? Yeah, so up until about the Protestant Reformation, they're going to kind of overlap. It's going to be the time sort of medieval uh, thinking is is reigning supreme. Maybe like 1200 to 1600. Yeah, and maybe okay. even even before that. And um, of course, this isn't this isn't perfect. It's a ballpark. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a ballpark. And and the Reformation is going to start. And you know, a lot of and, and I would say some people even think in the with a pre-modern mindset today, I would even say there are some good things about it that I retain, yeah. uh, but not completely. Okay. So give me, help me put this for people. You say pre-modern context, this would have been, so if we're talking 12 to 1600, we're looking at 2100. So 500 to 800 or so years ago, ballparking it. Roughly. This is the way people looked at information. It was authority. Yeah. Right. If, if the Pope says it, it's true, if the Got priest it. says it, it's true, um, after the Reformation, if the Bible says it, if somebody falls in, as, right. describes themselves as a, ref, uh, a reformer, yeah. if the Bible says it, it's true. Got it. Um, so the authority shifted from the Pope to the yeah, scriptures that's, themselves. that's going to right. go on in there. And But of course, for uh, Roman Catholics, it's still of the course. Pope. Yeah. yeah. So you still have these things left over in our in our day and age today. It's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shift. So the Protestant Reformation is going to uh, come about and uh, people are going to get, uh, the Bible's going to be more accessible. And on, on one hand, this is great for the church. You know, people can read the Bible. On the other hand, now you have all these different interpretations. People start to think for themselves. And this is going to affect not only the church, but society. And it's going to spawn what, what we know as the Enlightenment. A guy by the name of René Descartes. Okay. Uh, his cogito ergo sum. Je pense donc je suis. I think, therefore I am. That was really impressive, by the way. How, how is it that you can say that so eloquently? Because we talk about this literally in every PhD seminar. <laughs> you, you would do it too if you sat there too and heard your professor say it over and over again. So my philosophy class at college, we had to study Descartes, right? He's, he's 101, I think, therefore I am. So he's French. You said that with a very good French accent. Do you speak French? Uh, on peut. I don't even know what that means. But. A little bit. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Enough to order my food. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, good. You could order us French food later. Okay. So modern thinking. Now we're looking at the Reformation somewhere around the what? 15, the, 1600s. Yeah. So we're coming out of pre-modern thinking and, and uh, Rene Descartes is going to start the enlightenment and shift us to modern thinking. So what Descartes does, he's going to search for like a foundational certainty via doubt. Okay. So the, he's he's thinking, therefore I'm and so his idea is what is the thing that I absolutely can be certain about, namely my existence. I know that I exist because I doubt, mm. basically. Okay. And he wants to find absolute certainty. And this is why I wanted to talk about epistemology when when we ask the question, how can I know? We have to ask, what do we mean by no? Okay. Because not everybody's on the same page about that. Got it. So if you're in the pre-modern uh, mindset it's who the authority is that you trust. That's how you gain your knowledge. As we shift to the Enlightenment and modernism, the Enlightenment is born. People begin to think a bit more for themselves. Again, that's inspired by the Reformation that gets Bibles in people's hands. People can yeah. interpret. People can think. Science is going to take off a lot more uh, progressively. And in modernism, in modern the modern mindset, 
you have two streams of thought. You have empiricism and rationalism. Empiricism is making experimentation to determine whether something functions a, a particular way or how it behaves under any set of conditions. And rationalism has to do with, with reason and, and what is logically coherent and uh, makes sense. Um, so you've got empiricism and rationalism. And so there's a shift from knowledge comes from the authority to knowledge is out there for us to discover. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as my own individual self, I can go out there and find out what the truth is. I can gain knowledge. I don't need the authority. I can be the authority myself. Which you could see also has to do with the way the sciences have blown up over the last few hundred years. Sure. We start running experiments, looking for things in all the sciences, archaeology, mm -hmm. uh, biology, all the ologies, right? All of a sudden you can go and, and study them for yourself and yes. learn about and come to conclusions of. And, and I want to emphasize, I think there are pros and cons to all three of these mindsets. Um, neither one of them is purely bad. Neither one of them is purely good. You just have to watch out for the, the pitfalls. Got so it. again, pre-modernism, knowledge rests in the authority. Modernism, knowledge and truth and meaning is out there to be discovered or reasoned to. And uh, so you got empiricism, rationalism. And the main, the main voice I would say there is a guy by the name of Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. He's a German and he talked about... Das Ding an sich, the thing in and of itself. He started to, he was, he was a child of the enlightenment. He, he sought truth. Um, he wanted to know the way things were, but he realized, and I think he made it, it there's, there's great discovery here or realization. We filter reality through structures in our minds. I don't just see the thing in and of itself. Um, as itself like this nice solid hard table here yeah i i have a a perception of what this thing is and how it's supposed to function why it's there and i bring that literally to the table um, <laughs> as a, as i look at the table so and what we're looking at right now for those of you who aren't sitting in the room it is a wood table it's a uh a table made out of wood that it's made to look uh, refurbished, that kind of thing. It's it's very rough intentionally. And what I hear you saying, Brett, is when I when you and I walked in this room together, one of the first things you said is, "Wow, this table is really cool looking." And so, but because I'm familiar with wood, I'm familiar with. I, I look at this; it looks like it came out of a barn. I have no idea where it actually came out of. Like my brain automatically puts that in a box that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what Emmanuel Kant is saying. Yes. Yes. And so he's gonna sort of push back or tweak. Descartes a little bit and say, wait a second, we don't, we don't have absolute what, what has come to be known as Cartesian from Descartes, yeah. Cartesian certainty. We filter things through our mind. We, we don't have reality in and of itself. We see it through our biases, our, our, our prejudices. So our, would Emmanuel Kant be pushing us to challenge our preconceived biases? Yes. I think that's one of the, the good sides of Kant. I think where he makes a mistake is he goes so f he goes so far, if I understand him correctly, it's been a while since I've read him, but he goes so far as to say, we, we can't know reality in and of itself. And I, I slightly disagree with him because I say it is possible that our preconceived notions, the filters in our mind actually do help us to gain knowledge of reality. Um, right. and, and they don't always hinder us. Yeah. They sometimes do, sometimes they help us. It's just, we can't step out of our 
outside of ourselves to confirm with 100% Cartesian certainty whether or not our interpretations correspond to reality. Right. This is a bad example. I have three little boys though. And sometimes they ask me things. I wish I could think of a specific example, but something like, well, daddy, how do you know that's going to happen? I'm like, well, buddy, first of all, I'm 44, about to be 45 years old. I've experienced that enough times that I know with certainty, if you do X, Y is going to happen. But how do you know? What if, what if I'm the exception to the rule? And I'm like, but buddy, this is a hard and fast rule. This is a hard and fast principle. It's not going to change. Like you're not suddenly going to run through the wall. You're going to lose every time. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. That kind of, but what if I am? I'm like, I love your thinking. Don't lose that, but it's not going to happen. It's that kind of thing. So you're saying Kant is trying to push us beyond certainty or is he trying to push us to certainty? I think he wanted to find uh, sort of a certainty, but he he realizes this this mind that we have has other things to it than just a, a blank look at or a pure look, you might say, at the thing out there. Okay. And so we're, we're affected by culture, language, um, our upbringing, our experiences, our experiences, the way we're made. Yeah. And yeah. so there's there's truth. So I think there's truth in pre-modernism, and I think there's truth, truth in, in modernism. modernism. Okay. And then and but this, hey, you're the interpreter. Yeah. And you might not have it perfectly. That's going to su- sow the seeds for postmodernism. Okay. Where knowledge and truth is existentially experienced, created, or centered in the individual. Okay. Okay. So let me give you just a real quick synopsis of the three. If we have a book, let's, let's just say any book like the Bible. Let's say we believe that God is the main author behind this. Yes, he uses prophets and apostles. But in pre-modernism, I know truth by understanding what the author said. The truth is in the author's intent. In modernism, truth is in the text. Okay. for me to discover. Okay. In postmodernism, it's more so I bring or I um, resonate or um, it's about I how I feel. It's about how I feel. It's much more reader-centered. So in the in the first one it's it's author-centered, second one it's more text-centered, and the third one it's more me-centered. Re- me-centered. Yes. And that would be, would you say that is where we're sitting today? Or are we now sitting at the brink of a fourth coming of age, a fourth, a post-post-modernism? I mean, I've heard people talk about that, but I, I'm hesitant to, to predict on that. I'll be honest. I think you... I think you see a lot of all three of them. Um, we talk a lot more about postmodernism. You see a huge struggle right now between modernism and postmodernism, especially when people are debating about this is what science says and no, but this is this is what's right for me. You you, know, you hear those things, but I think there's still a lot of premodernism. We don't we don't question the authority yeah. uh, going on still. So I, I, this is one of the things uh, in my studies of postmodernity, if I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where we are today is postmoderns refuse to be labeled. They hate the labels. Mm-hmm. And so part of that thinking we might be in a post-post is just the fact that we don't want you to give us a label, right? So we refuse for you to call us postmodern because that's a label. That's we don't a want great, a label. That's a great example. So yes. we may not actually be in a post-post-modern. It's just that we don't want the, the label. So we want to be called something different or something else. And, and oftentimes, and that will affect our understanding of truth, doesn't right. it? Absolutely. Because if I don't want to be identified with that group over there or with that group over there, with that person over there, I'm going to try really hard to uh, avoid it. And uh, it might affect what, how I understand something or what, what I believe. So we started with the question of how does this help us understand the Bible? I want to come back to that. But before 
before we, we before we get there, let me let me ask you a question. As this applies to say the world we live in today, it could be in the church world, it could be in the business world, it could be in the political world. If I'm understanding correctly, you tell me if I'm wrong. People of maybe over sixty, maybe in that ballpark, over fifty, would be still had their foot in the modern age. Oh yes. And so, where would you put in ballpark? The postmodern thinking begins. Well, it's so hard because it starts in Europe. Uh, it's a lot bigger in Europe, a lot sooner. But oh, I really think it depends on who you're talking to. I meet young. I meet millennials who are definitely more modern than I a- anticipate or expect, wow. and they, and they surprise me. But um, but then I'd I'd say you know generally speaking, I know the younger I was, the easier for it, me, it was for the easier it was for me to sort of find myself maybe in postmodernism. But now, as I get a little bit older, I'm like, n- no, um, there you can't live that way. You, you've got to you've got to take a chance that you can make sense some sense of reality, or you're not going to make it down the street to the store in your car. <laughs> right, <know>? right. And <laughs> and we all do this at times, right? When it comes to like, say a medical diagnosis. So I, I have many friends who found out they had cancer and then it's like, okay, do I trust the authority of the medical establishment to go whatever they're, they're suggesting I do chemo, they're suggesting I whatever, whatever, or do I want to take a shot on this thing I saw on the internet that doesn't have any medical science backing right. and like, I'm going to try these diets. I'm going to try, and people out there may be getting frustrated, me even suggesting that one is better than the other. I'm not trying to suggest anything, but we see it play out yeah. in culture oh, yeah. based off which of these we ascribe to more, correct? Yes, absolutely. And you know, this sounds academic and philosophical, <clears throat> but this is this is everyday conversation. Right. Philosophy is not just some lofty uh, field that only a few study. It happens every day in our lives. So now let's bring us back to your transition then. The reason you helped us to understand that is because... Um, because. Yes. I want to advocate what I call critical realism. Okay. And this will this will come back to, to help us to answer the the first question, how can I know and trust the Bible's message about Jesus? Critical realism is, is sort of a balance of the last two, okay. I would say. A balance, it attempts to balance Kant and Descartes. It's an awareness that the structures in my mind, the preconceptions, the biases, the decisions, the cognitive commitments and experiences, which have I formed uh, that they, I process information through them, facts, and I use them to formulate knowledge. I balance this though with a very real possibility of understanding and speaking meaningfully and having some level of knowledge about our shared reality. There has to be some level of modern thinking that's true for us to even share reality because we have to be able to talk about the same things. Now, just basic conversation, we sometimes have to clarify things because we don't know exactly. I might not understand Matt perfectly. Matt might not understand Brett perfectly. And so we have to ask, okay, what did you mean by that? Did you mean it in this way? Did you mean it in that way? And we sort of nuance it. But we know that we're talking about something quite similarly because we wouldn't be able to communicate at all. And so a good critical realist balance keeps in mind that we we might get things wrong, but we most likely don't always get everything wrong. Does that make sense? It it makes sense to me. Let me see if I could put this uh, into everyday terms for a minute here. 
uh, the only reason driving on the road works is because we have an agreed assumption that that little yellow dotted line in the middle of the road is going to keep you on your side and me on my side. Great example. So yeah. it's that agreed assumption. If I do, if I follow these rules, we're going to be okay. But if we throw all rules out the window, by the way, I've been to India where there are no rules and there's constant wrecks and other things from where the way people drive. So if now put that into the sciences, put that into philosophy and religion, there comes a point where if we believe nothing can be known, then what's the point of living, right? right. We have to have a certain set of rules, right. but we also accept we may not fully understand what all of those rules are. We may need to test our previous assumptions yes. to make sure that rule is actually a rule. Yes. And so when coming back to this, uh, this, this question about the Bible, yeah. um, I want to point out, I don't believe we have absolute Cartesian certainty, but that doesn't mean that I'm a full-blown postmodernist. I'm with you. Okay. Does, that, does that make yeah, sense? Makes sense so to me. We always, yeah. In fact, in fact, I think from the from reading the scriptures, and I think this will I think you'll know right where I'm where I'm going with this, Matt. We we did a, our ministry did a video on this called "Embracing Uncertainty." I think the scriptures predict this predicament, this okay. human predicament. Why? Because we're created in God's image, according to the scriptures. So we have there's something about us that is like God, but we don't have His omniscience, His ability to know everything, and mm. and it's sort of interestingly frustrating. Mm. Um, we're, do you ever sense that frustration? You're like, I just wish I could understand and fathom that. You notice your curiosity going beyond the limits of your knowledge. Yes. Right? And so when we read verses like, and I'll just kind of allude to them here. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about um, how certain things are revealed this in this law, but other secret things are not revealed. Well, you're, we're told that. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, and, and what are you and I thinking? You're like, wait a second. I want to know about those things that aren't revealed. <laughs> yes. God, what, what are you holding back on us? Yeah. And it's like, we know there are things that we don't know. Yeah. Or Ecclesiastes 3.11, God puts eternity in our hearts, mm. but we're told we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Right. And so again, we're curious, but we don't get to know everything. And, yeah. and so it's almost like a recipe for frustration or, or something like that. First Corinthians 13, nine and 12, Paul talks about knowing in parts, mm. but when the perfect comes, uh, we will know as we are known. I believe there, there's some disagreement about this. I believe that perfect refers to Christ's return. Mm. Um, I could be wrong about that, but, uh, um, there's a sense. One thing for that we, I think we understand there is God knows us completely and we only know him partially, or right. we only know things partially. So to set that up, to use that, to set us up for your question, we, we shouldn't expect to know everything in a full-blown omniscient Cartesian certain sense. I mean, look at John 6, the yeah. last part of John 6. A lot of people like, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people like Jesus's easy teaching, <laughs> right? You're talking it, about verse 66, I'm guessing. Oh, I, I love, yeah, because he's just given yeah. this really hard teaching, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and people start leaving him. Yeah. We're like, wait a second, Jesus, if you were, you can't be the preacher at my church because we want people to come, right? Yeah. You're, you're pushing people away. And, and, and he turns to the, the apostles or the disciples and says, well, do you want to leave too? And Peter's like, Lord, to whom shall we go? Yeah. We, you have the words of eternal life. Yeah. Um, so the idea is, I don't think Peter's saying we understand you, Jesus. He's saying we just know that you're the guy that's got the goods. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to hang on to you, but we haven't even begun to make sense of this. Right. Right? So we humans seem to have a curiosity that exceeds the limits of our knowledge. We apprehend God, but we don't fully comprehend God. 
Does that make sense? It does. We we can we know God, but we can't wrap our minds around him. Right. I love it when people bring up the question of the Trinity. Yeah. As if I'm supposed to understand it and explain it to them. So I, it seems to me like there's, and I don't remember which psalm it is. It's one of my favorite psalms. I don't remember the number, but David says, um, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And what he says prior to that is he's pondering the fact that, we're, you know, you know me full well. You know everything about me. When I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. You know me when I go to the depths. You know me no matter where yeah. I am, no matter what I'm doing, you know me. And then he's like, I don't know how you do that. I literally cannot <laughs> comprehend. Uh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Yeah. But, it, it, but if this is a God we're supposed to worship, yeah. How could it be otherwise? How can I know that anything you're saying is true? Again, you're saying, I can't know with 100% certainty, but right. is there enough certainty that I could know? Yeah, I think we have, we can talk about degrees of confidence. Okay. And I think there are certain uh, areas that where we have much higher uh, degree of confidence uh, than, than, than others. Understanding God's essence is one of those things that at some point is off limits to us. It's, it's forthcoming, um, but it, he has revealed some things. He's, the, the word of God became flesh. Jesus came down and lived among us. In a, in a strange roundabout way, our experience of uncertainty, think about this, Matt, ends up confirming the scriptures because the Bible tells us we're made in his image and gives us all these verses where you're not going to know everything. Well, what do you and I experience? Uncertainty. Yeah. And so our uncertainty actually ends up being an evidence for the truth of scripture. In other words, you're saying because the scriptures tell us you aren't going to know everything and make peace with that. God knows everything. It's not hidden from you. He's not like, it's not like the scriptures are setting out to help you get everything. Right. They're helping you to get enough to have faith. Right. And, and no, no offense to Rene Descartes, he kind of messed us up in this idea of make, giving us the idea that knowledge is absolute certainty. I think we can talk about degrees of confidence. We're, we're, coming, we're coming to the question, how can I know I can trust the Bible's message about Jesus? Well, rounding down to that, I believe we see already that the Bible explains our human experience quite sufficiently. This is just an example. Our uncertainty, we're told in Scripture that that's going to happen. It does happen. I'm just going to say, generally speaking, I think other worldviews have a more difficult time explaining our uncertainty. Where I think the Bible explains it very sufficiently. Can I press yeah, in on that? Please do. Please do you do. do you have an example? Do you, are you familiar with one of the world religions well enough? So we, you know, how do we know we could trust you? Know what you're talking about? Can you give us an example of a religion that doesn't really do a sufficient job of owning this? Well, I'll just I'll give you an example from a recent conversation, and I don't know if this is the best one, but I'm I'm dialoguing with a, a young lady from the Latter Day Saint Church right now, uh, the the, the Mor Mormons. Mormons, yeah. yes, and um, she reached out to me on um, Facebook and started sharing her faith with me. And I said, okay, let's, let's talk about this. I'm, I'm, I love to do this. When we get down to brass tacks, I, I'm like, let's compare our books. Let's compare the Bible to the Book of Mormon. Let's look at these verses. Let's look at the historical reliability and all this. When we get down to brass tacks, her bottom line foundational faith is, I know that the gospel as presented in the Book of Mormon, I, I just know it in my heart is true and that it's restoring how the, the the church that's been led astray and so it's it's basically it's like a burning of the bosom they talk about or mm -hmm. a, an inner assuredness well i can have that experience too about my feelings of the scriptures yeah. and then we're at an impasse or politics or any number of things exactly. my favorite movie my favorite meal yes and so there has to be a way to break that 
juggernauts. Beyond a feeling, you're yes, saying. Yes, yes. Um, and so we might bring in here the Shema Israel, the the confession, the big confession. Deuteronomy 6. Yes. And Jesus, you know, puts that together with another verse in the Old Testament, escapes me right now, um, for the greatest command. Right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul mind, mind, and strength, strength, which basically is shorthand for all that you are. Right. Part of that is your mind, right. right? That's one facet of who we are, yet there are other parts. What that tells me is there has to be room for those other parts. Got it. Part of me in, that apprehends God is the mind, but God wants all of me. And so it shouldn't surprise me that my mind finds the limitations, the boundaries yeah. where I have to trust him or love him with my strength right. or my experiences or my feelings or my emotions. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? To me, it does. Let me see if I can summarize for the listener. So what I hear you saying is you're using this one anecdote, this one example, uh, you challenged her, you, the reliability of the scriptures against the reliability of the Book of Mormon. And that's not really the purpose of our conversation here. So if you want to know more about that, we could push, push some uh, resources into the show notes or something like that to help you. But what we're talking about is you're challenging. Look, when you look at the two, there is so much evidence to trust the scriptures, not 100% certainty, but to a degree of certainty. Yes. But the Book of Mormon doesn't have that kind of certainty. Yes. In fact, just my limited experience with the Book of Mormon, you've got a young man named Joseph Smith, um, he has this revelation from the angel Moroni and he starts writing down everything the angel told him to write down. And if he got it right, the word disappeared. There's been nobody in existence who to verify what he said or anything that he said that it was true. Nobody was there to be a part of that experience with him. Yes. And when he did have, when he did have these alleged plates or tablets, he kept them hidden behind a curtain. Right. Like nobody you said, could see, nobody could him. see him. Right. Compare that to Jesus. Right. Who lived openly and taught lived openly, openly, taught openly and he doesn't write anything. Yeah. You know, I've heard people fault Jesus for not having having not written anything, but yeah. he, it's multiple witnesses writing about him, hearing him, so they can sort of corroborate later on, hey, did Jesus actually say it this way, or did he say it this way, or did he do it this way, or did he do it that way? And many times the scriptures give us those people's names. Absolutely. I was just reading the other day, um, at the end, of, right, right at the dinner where Jesus is about to be betrayed, and it says, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And it's like, it's identifying him. You can actually go ask his daddy. <laughs> you yep. can actually go ask his yep. family. Was there, did your son actually do this? And he could say, look, my son did it. He hung himself, you know, da, 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 da. Here's the field. Mm -hmm. They could point to a moment in time and place. But again, in this example, the Book of Mormon doesn't have that kind of uh, reliability, validity, whatever it might be to it. So when she was pressed on that, her answer wasn't to push back and say, no, 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 you just don't know. Her answer to that was, I just sense it in my heart. I know. It's a, it's a, it's a very postmodern, very me centered. I know it in my heart. And, and for me personally, that just doesn't get it done. That's, I'm not willing to put my faith in that. Uh, if that's all that the Bible was, I would not be sitting here right now. now that's you're interesting. Getting, uh, yeah. uh, I, there's more to it than just an, uh, existential experience. Got it. But there is an existential experience as well. So okay. we don't, it's, it's, it's both. Okay. So we see that the Bible explains our, our uncertainty. I think it gives us a reason to keep, to hang on in, in the midst of our uncertainty because we should expect it. Right. That's one of the reasons for examining whether or not the Bible accurately reports about Jesus. Cause I think it already expl explains our experience well. And the Bible is not just a book as, as you know, it's a library. 
Mm. And we talked about multiple witnesses. You know, we could go back into the Old Testament. And we've got 66 books um, essentially telling the same story. Now, if you've read the Bible longer, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening today and you're thinking, you know, I've read a few passages and I'm not seeing that, I would encourage you to give it time, mm. to read it for, for, for a few months or a few years. In my experience of reading it for 26, 27 years now, the more I read it, the more I see how it's it's telling one grand story. Yeah. And and yes, it's it's mainly about Jesus, but it's also about us. Yeah. Not me-centered, but what God wants for us, how he wants to reconcile us to him through his son. So the Bible, it's not just a book, it's a library. The New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament are all based on or inspired by Jesus, his life and his teachings. So you have 27 witnesses pointing back to Jesus. And when you say witnesses, you don't mean people, you mean the books. The books. Right. I, I, yeah, they're sources. Some of those have the same author. They, yes, right. some of them have the same author. Well, some of them have multiple authors within them. Right. Correct. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, this pretextual creed, Paul lists all the apostles and, and 500 uh, brothers right. who were, most of them were still alive, who had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. Right. And he says, they're still alive. Right. You know, basically, he said, go, go ask find them. One. <laughs> go find them. Talk to them. Multiple witnesses. It's very early. When we're talking about the New Testament, we're talking about very early material and a very and a uniform message. Mm. Um, I hear a lot of people, and I'm sure you've heard this too, Matt, who will want to say, well, look at all the contradictions in the New Testament. And I say, well, which one are you talking about? Tell me, tell me one. The only fight or discrepancy that really is happening in the early church is the debate over how to welcome the Gentiles into the church. And guess what? They end up agreeing there's just a little bit of unsettled uh, cultural awkwardness about how to go about that. But the teaching is is uniform coming from the apostles. So to that point, I just picked up a book. I'm not all the way through it. It's called The True Jesus by David Limbaugh. I don't know if you've heard of that one. But I have not. He makes the argument, and I've not heard this, that the first book of the New Testament most likely was written within, I think he says, or maybe the first passage, it could have been those early creeds, within possibly even 15 years or um, even less, even a few few years. I cannot mm-hmm. remember the time frame he said now. Why would that even be relevant? Well, because that's really close to the historical Jesus. You know, a lot of people, I'm going to try to say this as, as quickly as possible, Jesus is very prominent figure even today every everybody wants a, has a version of him wants him on their team wants him to sort of sign off on what they believe and what they're what they're promoting so the question is what did Jesus truly do believe uh, think or say you know and and so the really the only way to know that is to find what is the earliest material about him and so if we if we can date these books to within a decade or two or, or even in the, within half of a century, that's great material. In order to undermine the biblical portrait of Jesus, you have to find something earlier than that. And so, we're again, the, the key words are early and multiple witnesses. It's okay. early and multiple witnesses. So, you can't just come up and say, well, I think Jesus was, was a, I don't know, political yeah. revolutionary and prove that historically unless you can find sources, in sources that day. Yeah. from that day that are not only earlier, but are more uh Copious. It'd be easier. Uh, I'll give an example. This may or not be a good one. But when Mel Gibson wrote Braveheart, um, he did a ton of research, bunch of history stuff. But he was quoted later after the movie, one of those awards. He's like, look, I'm not a historian. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Hollywood script writer because 
a lot of the things that were inserted, either he made them up or they just come from legend. We know they come from legend. They come from 150, 200 years after his life. Yes. Um, in fact, he even jokes about some of them when he's trying to rally the troops at one point in the movie. I know this is an older movie. Those listening may or may not have seen it, but he's going up and down. He's like, I know I've heard, you know, lightning bolt comes from his eyes and fire from his backside, you know? And he's like, the whole point is even he's acknowledging in the movie, yes, there's all these rumors about me. They aren't true. However, let's go fight for freedom. You know, that kind of thing. And what you're saying is if we could date it back to the actual timeline, people who actually walked with him, mm-hmm. not people a hundred years later who right. are saying, I think he was like this, or I heard he was like this. Now we can verify it by a moment. Yes. And if I may, let's talk about you, you, you something possibly dated within like 15 years. Okay. Um, from what I understand, m- scholars will date the earliest letters of Paul, it's either Galatians or first Thessalonians anywhere from 17 to 21 years after Jesus. We're not sure about James because James doesn't give us a lot about when he's written, but it's very Jewish. So when the church was, was very Jewish in its, in its culture, that's why some think James might be early, the earliest, but uh, that's still even, even all the way down to John, who's probably going to write last of all, that's still, John is writing it's 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus by ancient standards. That is very early. Can can you give me any other comparison? Who's a famous author that we have today? And the earliest book is something, I mean, I think I remember hearing a religious class. I think, well, the earliest copies we have of Plato's books are X amount of years. Do you have any data point like I, that? I, I do. Um, not off the top of my head, but I have them in, like in my, uh, in my papers, yeah, yeah. in my satchel and whatnot. <laughs> I, I think it, yeah. if I give a rough estimation, I think um, some, like we'll take like Alexander the Great. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, the earliest writings we have of him are a couple centuries removed. Two centuries. Or, yeah. But nobody questions their authenticity. Now, just like you said, we do see some embellishment sometimes. I think people know there's some, there might be some embellishment there, but they don't doubt his existence. They don't right. doubt that he was this great Greek ruler who who took over the the Middle East or, or whatnot. You know, there are certain things that are they're obviously known. When we bring this back to Jesus, it's unprecedented how early this material is. Yeah. Um, in fact, but, but but think about it this way. Not only is it unprecedented in how early it is, we're talking about the most influential person of all human history. Yeah. And I'll get I'll get in trouble sometimes. I'll say that to people and they'll say, Well, that's a very subjective statement. But then I just turn around and I say, Well, who do you think who would you suppose is more influential than Jesus? Yeah. And they usually don't get a response. Yeah. Lots of stories I could tell on that one. We have a, a Jewish family friend, and uh, somebody asked him once who the most famous Jewish person of all time was, and he said Einstein. I was a little surprised Moses or Abraham didn't have a, <laughs> a bigger <laughs> following, but uh, I still think Jesus takes the cake. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, he's he's the one that has schools, hospitals uh, named after him. Orphanages. Uh, orphanages. <laughs> churches. I mean, and all, all over the world. I mean, yeah. if you step back and think about it, uh, a good book is by D. James Kennedy, written uh, two or three decades ago, What If Jesus Had? had never been born. He mm. sort of uh, traces this question. That'd be fascinating to read. Yeah. So. Okay. So coming back, I think just to summarize what I've heard us say, how can I know and trust the Bible's message about Jesus? And how can I know God is real? So first, what we're talking about is, um, I can't know with 100% certainty, but I can know 
with the degree of clarity, with the degree of evidence. And then I can choose to weigh on that. I, I heard the analogy a long time ago. If you, Brett, and I are sitting on an airplane together and the airplane experiences significant turbulence, I may have 90% confidence that the pilot knows what he's doing and could get us there. You may have 10% confidence that the pilot knows what he's doing and could get us there. But at the end of the day, we're both sitting on the plane. Yeah. So the question is for each individual person listening, how much information do I need to be able to say I can get on that plane? I'm never going to get hundred percent. I'm not the pilot. The pilot is somebody else. Does that analogy break down for you? That's a, no, it doesn't. That's a great analogy. Uh, I think everybody's different though. Right. And so some people, some people are naturally more courageous than others. <laughs> and, and, and so they might be more willing to trust God with all their strength and say, you know what? I'm done with my old life. I'm going to trust Jesus. Yeah. He he seems to be the best option out there. I'm going to trust him and so it's it's a very courageous decision. Whereas others they want to weigh every minute detail and maybe even overthink it. Yeah. I think God loves both. Absolutely. Um and some people are so are broken have had some just horrific experiences and it's hard it's hard to trust anyone let alone make a leap over centuries and trust these these uh wit- early witnesses but but all but all I'm saying is if you're not going to trust these texts about Jesus you're probably not going to trust any if you're being consistent from the ancient world because yeah. the, these are are the best. Yeah, They really are. You have a bunch of notes in front of you related to this question. Do you have any notes that we didn't get to yet? Uh, just a last little bit about yeah. how I can know God Take is real. Take us there. Take us there. Um, and I'll just, I'll just touch upon this lately. Yeah, okay. The Bible describes our experience more sufficiently than other worldviews. That's, that, that, I know that's subjective, but I, but I believe it's true. Um, it, it describes even our uncertainty. It, it expects that we will experience uncertainty. Say that last one again. So the Bible explains our experience better than any other religion. I, I right? do believe that. Yeah, it, it, it anticipates that we will experience uncertainty. Yeah. And not just that. Um, this is where it, this podcast could easily go another hour on this subject. But when I understand that I live in a physical world, that the world has been tainted by sin. And that explains a whole lot of junk that's going on in the world. It does. And that the Bible says God wants to not just redeem me as a sinner, but he actually wants to bring the entire cosmos. Yeah. All of the created physical world, the universe, so to speak, into back into a right and healthy place. So every time you're sick and you go, this isn't fair. One of my sons, when he gets sick, the brothers don't, he goes, it's not fair that I get sick and they don't. All of that is coming from somewhere. And yes. God hates that as much as you do. Yeah, I believe And he's that. saying, I want to bring that into. So that's the gospel story is not just, oh, you're, you need a savior. It's the entire cosmos needs he's a savior. Re- he's redeeming and reconciling He's reconciling us to him. He's redeeming all creation, I believe. So it explains how I got where I got. It explains how the world is the way it is and yes. explains God's plan to bring things back. Not just the hope that I long for, but the frustration of the situation I find myself in in the first place. When I find myself shaking my fist at the sky, in other words. Yes. I, the Bible says you ought to feel that way. It's not working the way it should be. Yes. Okay. Yes. We see the brokenness and we sense its brokenness. And th- so the Bible describes our experience more sufficiently. Uh, Jesus, yeah. I think Jesus is the best evidence for God. I know we don't say it that way often, but Jesus, you you have to explain, if you don't believe the biblical portrait of him, you have to explain how he got here, the, yeah. that version of him. And so think about it like this. Are we? I, I just asked this question. Are we really supposed to believe that Galilean fishermen have successfully invented the most influential personality of all human history? 
Yeah. Real quick example. <laughs> I never thought of it like that. So I'm over here laughing like, yeah, no, no offense to any fisherman no, listening to this. No, they were amazing. And I'm glad God chose them. I'm glad he didn't choose me to be one probably of Probably not the most profound thinkers in no, the world, right? Think about, take Tolkien. C.S. Lewis, yeah. Shakespeare. Think about the, or, or in the German-speaking world, Goethe, the characters they were able to create. They yeah. were literary masters. Yeah. And they could create, like, characters that were just, you're just like, wow, you know, Legolas or whoever, yeah. you know, whoever your favorite, uh, our dog's name is Frodo. Um, <laughs> is he small? He is very small and, and yippy. <laughs> and hairy feet. Go yes. Ahead. But think about the characters they were able to create. They were amazing. Yeah. None of them come close to Jesus. Now, don't cheat on me and say, yeah, well, Aslan. Well, Aslan's based on Jesus, okay? <laughs> I'm with you. So, but but think about the the dis- disparage there. You've got these great literary minds not able to create a Jesus, and you've got these simple blue-collar workers yeah. who give us the most profound Image. personality yeah. of all human history. Yeah. That's God. That's not That's not man's invention. Yeah. Because even if you disagree with the text, you still have to ask yourself the question, how do we get this Jesus in the Bible? Because yeah. if, if that's not who he really is, then they made him up or he, they, they were able to spin him or, or the fish kept getting larger or something like that. <laughs> and it's just sit and wrestle with that for a while. Yeah. And then finally, classical apologetics, uh, you, talk, you described it as defending the faith, uh, gives us some, uh, uh, just some other reasons why we might believe God's, uh, God exists. Now I won't unpack all of those, but there's some really good arguments for God's existence out there. One is based on cosmology. We know today, modern scientists agree that the universe had a beginning. It didn't just pop into existence and it didn't create itself. Now you'll, you'll find all kinds of theories trying to say, oh yes, it did. It's, it's an oscillating universe or it's like a yo-yo that bounces back and forth. But from what we can tell, the universe started at some point in the past and whatever started it is not in it, but has to be powerful enough and precise enough to know, to bring this thing about. Uh, Another one is known as uh, teleology, which is design. I mean, we see some amazing design in nature. Uh, Another one is you were, uh, I think, alluding to this with your your son and, and fairness is known as the axiological or moral arguments. Morality is all around us and and we know it. We hate it when we're on the receiving end of a lie or when our bank account is is not what it's supposed to be. It doesn't add up. Yeah. Uh, real quick on two of those things you mentioned. First, cosmologically, I read or heard somewhere, and so I apologize, I don't have the quote, but that Stephen Hawking had said he feels like he could explain everything in the universe down to the first few nanoseconds. But therein lies the problem, right? Because he, he even admits, like, I, I, I can tell you what happened from here, but I can't tell you how that, that, that got there. I and, can't explain that. Right. And what happened before that is so important because everything is on a, a, a razor's edge at the beginning. If you don't, there are so many right. uh, cosmological constants that if they are not perfect. exactly perfect and precise, we don't get this world that, that you and I live in. And it's amazing how many biologists and mathematicians and scientists are coming to the same conclusion. They are not coming to the conclusion that Jesus is God or that Christianity is real, but they are saying there has to be a designer. You can call him what you want. You can name him an alien. I don't care. But it is impossible for there not to be a designer behind all of this. My point there is, again, the evidence. If you look at the evidence, it leads you somewhere. If you just keep asking questions, should I accept the paradigm that I've been handed? Yes. In fact, last century's leading atheist, Anthony Flew, made this decision. Now, he doesn't come all the way to Jesus, but he does move from atheism to deism. 
Okay. He, uh, because and enlarge it. And deism, real quick for our listeners, is is the belief that there was there had to have been a designer, somebody at the beginning to get s- some mind to get this started. Right. Because it's just too it's too precise. And so he wrote a book. I think it's called I Do Believe in God. He crossed he crossed out the I I don't or I do. He changed the title. Yeah. I forget it off the top of my like head. I but do it, believe in God. I, I don't believe in God. Yeah, That's, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I, it's uh, it's escaping me right now. But he make he makes that decision. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Richard Dawkins like said he's getting old and senile or something like that. <laughs> like if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he, you know, he, because he, he has to find a way to dismiss it. Yeah. yeah because yeah. there's no way that this bright atheist uh, philosopher could come, could come to that conclusion. Yeah. And finally, there's another argument. Well, no. can I jump in? Oh, also, yeah, please, please, please. Uh, what was your third one? Your um, morality. The morality. Yes. And so, you know, part of that thing with morality is uh, you and I have a mutual friend mm-hmm. and our mutual friend, I won't say their name in a conversation that I was having with him about God and faith. He made the argument that the, the universe has certain known laws, even certain known moral laws. And as I pressed on them, like, well, where do those come from? And he's saying, look, I know what you're going to say. You're trying to say that God created them. I don't believe that. I'm like, but then what are those laws? So then I started asking, what about this? Is this wrong? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this right? And he's like, yes, no, yes, no. I said, it sounds to me like you are the ultimate one. He's like, no, I've just discovered what those laws are. I'm like, yeah, but what if I don't agree with you? What if I believe those laws are different than you do? What makes you right and me wrong? Right. And so then there came the point where we just, again, we had to agree to disagree. But my point was, I believe there's something outside of me creating those laws. Not that I'm just making them up for myself or I don't agree with you. I don't like yours. I want to do what I want. Well, and so I think that's the, am I getting that right? That's I, the moral I, argument. I, yeah, I agree. Uh, there, there has to, there's a transcendent sen- um, component to morality that we share. That's that again, back to right. there. Ha- you have to, I believe use critical realism. It can't just all be me creating things or else I can't critique your decisions. If your child is kidnapped, why do we both agree? That's not okay. Right. Who's What if that other person believes it's acceptable to take children that you want to take? Why is that wrong? What makes that wrong? And there are, by the way, cultures in the world, this would be a good place to mute it or pause it for children listening. There are cultures in the world that believe it's acceptable to rape another person, that that is okay. Why would we say, no, that's not okay. It's never okay to force yourself on another person. Right. Well, for me, it's because my my scriptures tell me that my God says that is evil and it is not acceptable. But how can I impose that on you? So the moral argument says, correct? Am I getting this correct? Yeah. The moral argument says there are laws to the universe, the way God built the world. Yes. And uh, C.S. Lewis spells it out better than anybody in his book, Mere Christianity. We make cross-cultural judgments of other of other cultures and, and na- nations. We do that because we know inherently you don't do that. Right. You don't break a treaty that you just made with your neighbor and then invade their nation. Right. That's wrong. Right. Um, if you uh, give your word, you live by it. Yeah. And okay. uh, you the, had another one. The last, so cosmology, teleology, which is design, axiology, which is morality. And the last one, um, I won't unpack this too much, but ontology. I'll just put it, put it this way, because a lot of people don't like this argument. I love this argument. I'll just say this. It's fascinating that we as humans can so easily conceive of God. Mm. Even if we're skeptics, uh, Psalm 14, one says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, that person who denies God has a referent or a sense of what he or she is denying. It's not like I'm denying something that I can't logically conceive of. I'm denying something that maybe I don't want to exist. Mm. Um, and so it, it, God doesn't belong in the category of a, a logical incoherency and atheists deny God's existence, they know immediately what they're denying. If you and I were to do the same thing with, say, Superman, the conversation would change all of a sudden, wouldn't it? 
Yes. We would, we would be like, well, of course Superman doesn't exist. Right. Uh, we know who created him. Right. But we ask who created God, and all of a sudden you observe some hesitancy because we subconsciously know that God is in a whole other category all of his own. And so uh, let's go ahead and conclude our time today with that. For those listening, we're going to have a few more podcasts to record. We're going to come back and ask this question now. Let's just say we have some degree of certainty that there is a God. How can I know that God cares about me, about my life, about what's happening every day? We hope this is a blessing to you and we'll see you next time.